I was a kid, I remember a time when I read literature that went way over my head. I was capable of reading certain novels intended for older audiences before I was capable of fully comprehending their meaning. And I read the King James Bible. I read the Bible when I was maybe 10 years old. I read it at regular speed like anything else, and that means that I must have failed to comprehend much of even the most superficial content. So if you had asked me what I was reading about in a particular book or chapter, I would have given you the most basic, shallow answer. Well, it's about these two brothers, Cain and Abel, and one was really successful and God approved of him, while the other was bad and God wasn't happy with him. Something like that. This reading of the text could give you some idea of what names and events are in the Bible, but it would hardly equip you to understand the moral lessons and meanings of the content. So, for example, when Jesus said, It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, a cursory reading might yield something about camels and rich people. A naive but attentive reading of that passage might yield that God doesn't like rich people as much as poor people. A thorough reading of that passage could yield a rich and engaging moral statement, which is worth an hour's time in contemplating. In terms of moral development, of becoming the best version of yourself, being born in the lap of luxury is a major liability. Be careful what you wish for. If God is a symbol of the highest value, and if his kingdom is the vicinity of the highest value, then suffering poverty in one's life might enable a person to reach higher than they ever could if they had not thusly suffered. I'm reminded of the great lectures on biblical stories presented by Jordan Peterson. In those lectures, he, he intended to cover so much ground, but would un, under, uncover so much depth and such interesting implications to ponder as he was just getting started that he would find the hours exhausted, having only covered a few sentences of scripture. Meanwhile, I found the lectures riveting. This brings me to a problem in the literature on consciousness. I'm a guy who reads and writes a lot about consciousness neuroscience, but even I am often faced with a failure to easily comprehend what I'm reading. Different theorists use terms to mean different things, or they use their own vocabulary. This is not, for the most part, intended as obfuscation. Rather, we are speaking of phenomena that don't lend themselves to straightforward terminologies. I recently encountered this in reading a paper by Samir Zeki. To understand the context, I was thinking about the unity of consciousness, and I went looking for some new material in the peer-reviewed literature. The conscious mind is a unified thing. That, to me, is the biggest clue that should lead us to its physical explanation. But what do I mean by unified? I mean the parts come together into one. I mean there is a common point of view upon a composition of contents. There's this idea that the self is an illusion, a construct, and this is made compellingly clear when people experience heroic doses of psychedelic drugs. The dissolution of the ego in a new sense of oneness without loss of consciousness is a phenomenological demonstration that consciousness can exist without a sense of self. What does this mean? I have, on several occasions, divided the notion of self into two different things, the self-construct and the self as point of view. The point of view is the unity that I'm talking about. We conscious minds do not see or hear or feel ourselves, rather we see and hear and feel contents. Whatever I am, I experience contents. The contents are only altogether in one place, in one composition, from this one point of view, from me. The psychonaut whose ego has fallen away is nevertheless conscious of content. He no longer identifies with the body, with the thoughts or feelings. He sees perhaps clearly that all of the contents are just contents, neither himself nor not himself. But here's the thing. Everything that you see and hear and sense is happening inside of your mind. The contents are part of your mind. 
You are walking around within a world of contents, all, in a sense, made of consciousness. So what if the mystical experience of high-dose psychedelics is actually revealing this to you? You are one, not with the world and its things, but with the contents of your own mind. The illusion, which has been broken, is the illusion that some of the contents of your consciousness belong to you, and others belong to the world outside of you. In fact, they are all a single unity. They are all one. But the metaphysical implications of this for many people are, in my judgment, wrong. You are not one with the universe. You are one with the contents of mind. My framework for consciousness, the TICL, accounts for this. The contents of your mind are pieces of it, experienced from the perspective of the whole. The contents exist inside of you, not outside. You are some kind of system inside of which there are subsystems you can detect. You cannot detect anything outside of yourself. You are not seeing the lamp across the room. You are experiencing changes in the dynamics of occipital and parietal networks. And you know this to be true because you can dream. You can see the same lamp across the same room when neither the lamp nor the room is present. What these experiences must have in common is the occipital and parietal network which is acting. In the waking case, in the presence of a real lamp, and in the dreaming case where there is no real lamp, the experience shares its content because the same neural events are being witnessed. This brings me to a paper by Samir Zeki from 2003 called The Disunity of Consciousness. It got my attention because I've never heard a compelling account of consciousness that claimed it is disunified. Zeki writes, quote, Attempts to decode what has become known as the singular neural correlate of consciousness suppose that consciousness is a single unified entity, a belief that finds expression in the term unity of consciousness. Here I propose that the quest for the NCC will remain elusive until we acknowledge that consciousness is not a unity, and that there are instead many consciousnesses that are distributed in time and space. In this article, I propose that there are multiple consciousnesses which constitute a hierarchy, with what Kant called the synthetic transcendental unified consciousness sitting at the apex. Here, I restrict myself to writing about visual consciousness, and within vision, mainly about the color and the visual motion systems about which we know relatively more, for it can be shown that we are conscious of these two attributes at different times because of spatially and temporally different mechanisms then the statement that there is a single unified consciousness cannot be true." Unquote. When I first read this paper, I was a bit baffled by the argument. As I return to it later, I see that the author means something very specific by the term unified entity. It turns out that Zeki is making an argument that I also made, in different terms, in my papers on the TICL, especially in my most recent paper, which is accepted but not yet in press. I'll share a bit of what I said about unity in theoretical frameworks of consciousness, but since it's not published yet, I'll paraphrase the section rather than quoting. I'm not looking to annoy the publisher. I make the claim in the paper that human consciousness is composed of various contents which manifest as a unity. I make this observation on phenomenological grounds. I go on to explore how some different theories of consciousness deal with this unity. Throughout the section, I refer to a figure which I designed to illustrate how unity is handled theoretically, at least as I see it. The figure is something like this. Three panels, each showing one or more circles of some size. The first panel is simply a medium-sized circle, and nothing more. The second panel is a large circle, and nothing more. The third panel is a large circle containing several small ones and a medium one. For the sake of completion, I could include a panel with just the small circles, but not contained inside of a larger one. This is what I would have to imagine a disunified consciousness to be like. 
I use this simple figure to distinguish among theories regarding the relationship between consciousness and its contents. The basic idea is that, when, is that we mean something specific when we refer to content, and we mean something specific when we refer to consciousness. The conscious mind contains many distinct contents at any given time. I expect that the neural correlates of consciousness will likewise contain the neural correlates of content. Thus, I favor a framework which looks like the third panel in my figure, the one with a large circle, inside of which there are small circles and a medium circle. I specify the TICL according to this expectation. The neuronal activities which correspond to the state of consciousness should contain the subsets of neuronal activities which produce the content. This framing has some interesting advantages. But first, let me finish paraphrasing the section in my new paper that I've been sharing. According to Integrated Information Theory, IIT, the entire correlate of consciousness in the brain is the set of neuronal elements which have the maximal cause-effect structure, which is to say, the set that are maximally integrated over a given time frame. The whole thing is altogether one. There is no nesting of different activities with their own spatial and temporal scales. Since it is only the maximum structure which produces the conscious mind, it is very limited in size. So the most appropriate panel in my figure to model IIT is the first one, the medium-sized circle, all by itself. The contents are baked right into the cake. Christoph Koch has described this like a crystal. IIT says that consciousness is a monad, a single unified thing corresponding to the maximally irreducible cause-effect structure, the one with the most information. For the TICL, this maximum of cause-effect power should be a salient subsystem within a larger system. So in the third panel, the one with the large circle containing smaller ones, I include the medium-sized circle that corresponds to the whole story for IIT. According to global neuronal workspace theory, the wide availability of information is facilitated by a kind of broadcast. My immediate observation is that this sounds like panel 1 plus panel 4, a single medium-sized circle which is receiving a broadcast from a bunch of separate smaller circles. This model could not work as no such receiving area of the brain has ever been found. Rather, it might be that global neuronal workspace should explicitly position the broadcasting content networks, the little circles, inside the larger receiver network, like I did with the TICL. With that adjustment, my theory is quite compatible with global neuronal workspace, uh, workspace at least in general. Next, I discuss the general resonance theory, uh, according to which all the different local networks that come to resonate or synchronize together form a common structure that is the substrate of consciousness. This, I suggest, is modeled in panel two, the large circle with nothing else. In this way, there is no nesting of contents within consciousness. Like in IIT, there is a monad, one thing altogether. I go on to discuss operational architectonics and temporal spatial theory, both of which I think come out looking the most like panel 3, just like the TICL. When I make figures like these, I am genuinely attempting to simplify complex ideas so that I can make sense of them and share them with others. I find it frustrating when I cannot compare and contrast ideas because the apples and the oranges don't compute. None of these models I described looks like Zeki's disunified consciousness upon first pass. But looking closer, I found that he meant unity of consciousness to refer to the monad, or the single crystal-like structure of the substrate of consciousness predicted by IIT. And Zeki refers to micro-consciousnesses, which I've read about not long ago in Hunt and Schooler's paper in reference to panpsychism. Hunt and Schooler meant that there are small conscious entities everywhere in the world. It is like something to be each of these entities. So it might be like something to be an atom, a neuron, a network of neurons, and so on. 
In their work, they referred to the human mind as the dominant consciousness, a larger conscious structure produced by the brain. But in this context, I don't think Zeki is talking about micro-consciousness in the same way at all. Otherwise, the rest of his argument fails to make sense. I had to read it again more carefully to try to apprehend this. And as I said earlier, I'm a guy who reads these papers all the time. So it was interesting to me to see that the reimagining of two different terms in this paper unlocked its utility to me, and it might have gone unappreciated because of these ambiguous terms. Zeki writes, quote, The foundation stone for my argument rests on the fact of functional specialization in the visual brain, from which several consequences follow. By general agreement, this functional specialization is especially true of the color and the visual motion systems, which occupy geographically distinct locations in the visual cortex. A pivotal area for the color system is the V4 complex, and for the visual motion system, the V5 complex. There is substantial agreement that the two systems have distinct and characteristic anatomical inputs, despite the many anatomical opportunities for them to interact. The geographical separation of the two systems constitutes the cornerstone of a theory of multiple consciousnesses. Further support comes from the generally accepted clinical evidence that lesions of V4 and of V5 lead to different visual disabilities, the former resulting in an achromatopsia, acquired colorblindness, and the latter to an akinetopsia. Crucially, a lesion in one area does not invade and disable the perceptual territory of the other. Thus, an akinetopsic patient sees colors consciously, even though unable to perceive and to be conscious of fast motion. By contrast, an achromatopsic patient is unable to perceive and be conscious of colors, but is able to see and be conscious of visual motion effortlessly. Hence, consciousness of these elementary visual attributes are distinct from one another, and I speak of them as micro-consciousnesses, unquote. You see, that is not the same micro-consciousness that Hunt and Schooler were talking about. Samir Zeki never makes the claim that it is like something to be a local visual network. Rather, he is noting that distinct aspects of consciousness, such as visual perception of motion and of color, become conscious at different times. The contents of consciousness are thus independent from consciousness as a whole. There is not a single time scale for conscious experience. I totally agree. Zeki writes, quote, One conclusion from the cl clinical evidence is that a micro-consciousness for color or visual motion is generated through activity at a distinct processing site, and therefore that a processing site is also a perceptual site. Such a conclusion is reinforced by studies of the visual motion center, area V5, which receives a direct visual input that by bypasses the primary visual cortex, V1. The perceptual consequences of this anatomical arrangement have been well studied in patient GY, blinded in one hemifield in childhood by damage to V1. Our psychophysical and imaging experiments, independently confirmed, have shown that in spite of his blindness, this direct visual input to V5 is sufficient to give GY a crude but conscious vision for fast-moving, high-contrast stimuli, the perception of which is mediated by V5. It has also been shown that his consciousness, when visually stimulated, is visual. These findings suggest that contrary to previous assumptions, conscious vision is possible without V1, and also that if one can channel an appropriate visual input to a specialized visual area, then activity in it can result in a conscious correlate even if it is deprived of one of its major sources of visual input. It is thus incorrect to think of pre-striate cortex as being not conscious cortex. Moreover, the switch from a state when GY is not conscious of visual stimuli and cannot therefore discriminate them correctly to the state when he is conscious of them and can therefore discriminate them correctly is accompanied by a significant increase in activity in area V5, not elsewhere. 
This has led us to propose that it is heightened activity within a specialized cortical area that leads to conscious vision, and that its absence or lower activity in the same area correlates with a lack of conscious experience, a proposal that has been confirmed in other systems, not related to visual motion or even exclusively to vision." Unquote. Zeki argues that the area of cortex which processes a modality, such as motion vision or color vision, is the location of consciousness, not some further upstream receiver. I agree with this too. In the TICL, this is accounted for by the existing of a, a large conscious thalamocortical system, which perceives content in accordance with the local smaller subsystems it contains. The conscious mind thus perceives content where and when they occur. The illusion is that they occur out there in the world. In fact, they occur right here in the network. Finally, Zeki writes, quote, Much has been written about the ability of so intricate a system as the visual brain, with its many parts and distributed parallel pathways, to process all attributes of the visual world simultaneously, and thus provide a visual image in which all the different attributes are seen in perfect spatial and temporal registration. Our direct psychophysical results, now confirmed, show that this is not true over brief time windows. In particular, it's been shown that color is perceived before motion by 80 milliseconds. Nor is the perceptual asynchrony limited to color and motion, because it has also been shown that locations are perceived before colors, which are perceived before orientations. The perceptual delay between color and orientation, both first-order changes, makes it difficult to accept an alternative interpretation of our results, which suggests that the asynchrony is the result of comparisons between a first-order, color, and a second-order, motion direction change. We had assumed that this asynchrony is due to differences in processing time between visual attributes, and this assumption has been elegantly supported by recent experiments. Because we become conscious of color before we become conscious of motion, it follows that the micro-consciousnesses generated by activity at two distinct cortical sites are distributed in time as well. From this, it follows that micro-consciousnesses are distributed in time and space, and that there is a temporal hierarchy of micro-consciousnesses that for color preceding that for motion. Of course, it is also true that over longer periods of time, in excess of 500 milliseconds, we do see different attributes in perfect temporal and spatial registration. The attributes are bound together. This raises questions that binding studies have so far not addressed, mainly whether one area waits for the other to finish its processing, and whether a time buffer is part of the physiological mechanism for this waiting period." In my opinion, this paper presents an excellent argument in favor of hierarchical nesting structure for consciousness, just as I have provided in the TICL. The system in the TICL is temporally continuous, while the subsystems responsible for content emerge upon the system in their own time and with their own independent spatial and temporal dynamics. It's remarkable to me that it took a second reading in order to comprehend the implications of a paper which is in direct agreement with my own thesis. My second paper on the TICL argues in favor of a nested hierarchy, just as Zeki did. It also opines on the situation we find ourselves in as we try to distinguish and reconcile theoretical frameworks for consciousness. And it reminds me to stay humble as I listen to opposing viewpoints, not just in science, but everywhere. Perhaps more often than we realize, we are saying the same damn thing using a different set of favored vocabularies. I don't know about you, but I'd like to understand what everyone is talking about. I'd like to give the benefit of the doubt. I'd like to hear what other people have to say. And it's a lot harder to do that from inside the Tower of Babel.